Well, good morning. I've been going through the book of Revelation in the mornings and we are in chapter 11 this morning and uh, exactly halfway through the book. Chapter 11, in my opinion and the opinion of others, is probably the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. I was hoping the Lord will return before I come to preach it. <laughs> but that's not to be. So turn with me. Um, I also want to highlight the fact that uh, as you would have realized from my other messages that I have no intention of getting caught up with all the details in the book. I don't believe that's the purpose of the book or even of this chapter. What you and I need to give attention to are the main lessons and themes in the book. We're dealing with apocalyptic literature and as such much of the images and numbers and so on are symbolic. I've mentioned in my last message that chapter 10 and 11 are an interlude and I've pointed that out previously. This is a break from the sounding of the seven trumpets. Uh, the six trumpets have sounded, warning of judgment to an unrepentant world. The seventh is about to sound, when it will be too late for repentance. And so that's where we're at this morning. So before we uh, look at what the first two verses have to say, let me lead you in prayer. Let's pray, ask God's help. Our gracious God, as we come to your word we would ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it with joy and understanding. Guide my words, Lord, and thoughts as I seek to share the truths of this difficult passage. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us in our understanding as he points us to Jesus through the word. We ask that he would accomplish his will in and through the message. And Lord, may I speak with clarity, conviction, and compassion for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 11, reading the first 14 verses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. This is John speaking. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the, outer, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God will enter them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second war has passed. Behold, the third war is soon to come. Amen. Well, this chapter, I believe, breaks naturally into three areas. Firstly, the measuring of the temple. Secondly, the two witnesses. And thirdly, the sound of the seventh trumpet. And as I said, I just want to deal with the first area, the measuring of the temple. And as you read the text, you realize that John is an active participant in this vision that he was given. We read in verse 1, John is given a reed like a measuring rod and he's told to go and measure the temple of God, the altar, and the worshippers there. And the first question that came to my mind is what temple is John speaking about? He writes, as we've seen previously, about AD 90 or a couple of years after that, and the temple in AD 90 by that time was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So it cannot be a reference to that temple. But most importantly is the fact that elsewhere in Revelation, the temple is spoken about symbolically, and I'll point that out in a moment. But here we would ask the question as to whom or what does this temple represent? And I've said it many times previously that there is much of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. In books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and when we come to the end of Revelation, we will look at Genesis as well. But if we were to go back to the prophet Ezekiel and, and, and read chapter 40, Ezekiel also speaks about a temple. In chapter 40, the prophet is carried to a very high mountain and he is able to view this temple, which the Lord will build in the last days. And as Ezekiel looked on, an angel measured the temple. And he is told that this is where the glory of the Lord will come in all his beauty. And there is a discussion about this future temple which Ezekiel refers to and whether it relates to the temple that Herod completed and so on. So the question I guess we are left with is which temple is John speaking about here that has raised so much discussion amongst Christians and amongst scholars. There are those who believe that they, there will be a temple that will, re, that, that will be rebuilt 
in time to come, that ethnic Israel will be restored to its former glory, and Jesus will then reign from that temple during the thousand-year millennial. In fact, in Israel today, there is what's known as the Temple Institute, and you can Google this and you can read about it, but don't do it now, wait till you go home. Uh, the Temple Institute, where there is ongoing preparation for building the third temple by the religious Jews of modern-day Jerusalem. And you will read on the website that they're preparing sacred vessels, priestly garments, and so on, all in an effort to rebuild this temple. Even cedar from Lebanon has been placed in storage for this temple as well. However, the question really relates to whether John is speaking about a literal temple. And this is what has caused significant discussion between scholars. So my approach to the text then, in my approach to the text, I recognize that there is a diversity of opinion on this chapter. And I do not wish to judge believers by what they believe about this passage and their millennial views and so on. A believer is judged by his or her belief in the gospel. And that is what really matters. And so having said all that, I come back to the question of, what, uh, of whether this temple that is spoken of here is to be taken as a literal temple that will be rebuilt, or is John speaking about a spiritual temple? And those who believe that it must be taken literally must deal with some of the text in Revelation which would point to it not being literal. For example, the fact that Revelation was going to be revealed through signs and symbols. Right from the outset, chapter 1, verse 1, this is what John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place? He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Those words, made it known, is usually used in the context of making it known by sign and symbols. And yet John chooses to not use the common word for make known, but this word instead because it speaks of revelation or revealing by signs. The book is full of signs and symbols, is it not? For example, John is told to measure the temple along with its worshippers. How do you measure worshippers? Well, maybe it's referring to counting the worshippers. That could be so. John also says, for example, in chapter 3, verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He's referring to people being a pillar. Speaking of the fact that God's people are part of the temple, the temple being the bride of Christ or his people. And he says a similar thing in chapter 21, which we'll come to eventually, about the new Jerusalem being measured, which again shouldn't be taken literally, should it? Also in chapter 13 and verse 6, we are told that the beast will blaspheme God's name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So what I'm saying is that the temple in the book of Revelation is spoken of symbolically. The temple of God is the people of God and God's presence among his people. And similarly, the altar that's referred to here in our text refers to the way God's people worship there 
which could be suffering for their faithful witness. And I'll point that out in a moment. And so in speaking of the temple in the text, we are speaking of people. The, the people of God who are the temple of God. Just measuring the temple will in and of itself achieve nothing, would it? Wouldn't it? It's because the temple speaks of people that it becomes significant. And it's not just here in Revelation, but it's throughout the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you, and the word in the Greek there is plural, don't you know that you are the temple of God and God's spirit lives in you? Or as Peter says, we are living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And so the temple in the New Testament all too often refers to God's people. But then we go to verse 2 and we find that John is told to not measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles. Now what does that mean? We read, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Why not measure the Gentile court, which is the outer court? Why not number them? After all, are not Gentile believers as well? Are there not Gentile believers as well? You and I are Gentile believers. Why aren't Gentile believers in, to be included? Well, the obvious answer is because Gentile believers are now inside the temple. They are part of God's family and therefore the temple of the living God in whom the Spirit of God dwells. But these Gentiles in the outer court are those who are opposed to God, those who are opposed to the gospel, those who are opposed to God and his kingdom, they are on the outside court of the temple. You see, uh, in the Old Testament, the word Gentiles is usually used uh, as language for unbelievers. And the picture here is that those who are in the outer court are those who are opposed to God, unconverted men and women, as the, as the, as the text says, who will trample on the holy city. Callum, could you put those verses up, please? Uh, just the one slide with both verses. Thanks. And they will trample on the holy city. The trampling of the holy place by Israel's enemies is a common theme in the Old Testament apocalyptic text. You look at Daniel 8 and verse 13. And it says, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings to be trampled underfoot? But here, in saying that the temple will be trampled underfoot, it's referring to God's people being despised and persecuted by unbelievers. So bear that in mind. Having despised the Lord Jesus, they also despise his people. But notice where they are located. It's in the outer court of the temple. Although unbelievers, they are still within the temple courts, aren't they? They may be on the outer court, but they are still within the temple precinct, the temple courts. If we were to speak in today's terms, 
we would speak of unbelievers within the church. And that seems a strange thing to say, unbelievers within the church. It's contradictory, isn't it? But that's how it is. The reality is that there, are, there will be, and there always has been, unbelievers within the church of God. And that's why we speak of the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church being those who are known and seen by us as being part of the church, and the invisible church are those known only by God who make up the true church. And so it's not surprising, is it, to recognize that there are those in the church who don't believe the gospel. They are in the church for just about every other reason other than believing and living the gospel. So for example, there will be those in the church who not only don't believe the gospel, but things like same-sex marriage, abortion and euthanasia, that's what they believe in. And they concur with that. They attend regularly, they take the Lord's Supper, they even play an active part in the church. But Jesus says they are in the outer court. They are excluded in the outer court. And that's a very strong word in the original. It comes from the word to cast out. They have been excluded. They have been cast out into the outer court. But let's go back to the fact that God has chosen us to be his temple and we worship at his altar. What should that say to you and to me? Why are we, and for what reason, do we find ourselves within the temple or being the temple of God? The reason why the people of God find themselves within the temple is because God has done a work of grace in our heart and life. He's brought us from the world and into the kingdom. The difference between those in the outer court, if I can put it that way, and those within the sanctuary is the fact that God has separated them and set them apart to be his own. They are the temple of the living God. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's another issue, isn't there? What about this 42 months or 1260 days? or three and a half years. What's that mean? Why a period of 42 months? Are we to take that literally? The first thing to note is that it's a commonly used length of time in Revelation and in other parts of scripture, such as Daniel, again. So for example, in Revelation, it's seen as the time of the authority of the beast in chapter 13 and it's also the time the witnesses prophesy in verse 3 of our text in my next message it's also the time the woman is kept in the wilderness in chapter 12 and verse 6 all this referencing this period of three and a half years and there are other references as well and you probably noticed the three and a half days that are spoken of, uh, that's spoken of in, the, in, in chapter 11. However, there are those who see this 42 months mentioned here 
as being the time of the tribulation. And we've touched on that as well before. Some believing that the church will be raptured before this period, followed by a seven year period, three and a half years as being half of the time where the temple will be rebuilt and so on. And you can study that for yourself and come to your own conclusion. It's not something I want to spend much time on because it's not the main teaching of the text. The main lesson here in regard to the 42 months is that this persecution or this trampling on, on the holy place, the antagonism of the world in other words, is for a limited time which is the 42 months, uh, rep which, represent, which is represented by the 42 months. John says they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. The world will continue to trouble and persecute God's people. They will trample on the holy city, but not forever. There is a limit to it. It will not go on and on forever. God will bring it to an end. The time will come when God will rescue his people from the oppression and pain which they find themselves in. The time when the seventh trumpet sounds and the world as we know it will be wrapped up and the church will be vindicated and triumph over evil. The cry of the martyrs will be realized. So that's the first two verses. So we come to apply the text. Well to sum up what we've looked at is that the temple symbolizes God and his dwelling among his people. So what is God saying to us in speaking of a temple and altar and those who worship there? Indeed, what is God saying to John and to the worshippers of John's time and right throughout history? What is this uh, reference to the temple and the altar and measuring the people and so on got to do for us, with us today? And verse 2 highlights that there will be persecution for God's people that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So what Jesus is saying when he speaks about a temple, the altar and those who worship in the outer court or those who are in the outer court and being trampled on for 42 months and so on is that Jesus is using symbolism to talk to his people. He's saying that those in the temple are you, you are my people. And those in the outer court are the Gentiles who refuse to believe and accept the gospel of Jesus. It highlights the fact, doesn't it, that believers have been separated from the world or set apart from it. They've been brought from the outer court into the inner sanctuary by the power of the gospel as he works through his spirit. That they are in the world, but yet they are separated from it. And the persecution and the troubles the church will face is only for a limited time. That as people whom God has made his own, as those who are sealed, remember that, uh, those words from the previous chapters, as those who are sealed, he will keep them and bring them to heaven in the end. So there's the encouragement then for John, who is on the Isle of Patmos as, a, as an exile, is suffering for the sake of the gospel, so is the church of John's time and the church right through, the, uh, right through history has gone through trouble and persecution. Here's the encouragement. Jesus is saying, you are my people. I have claimed you. 
I have brought you out of the outer court into the, into the temple, and now you are my own, and I will keep you throughout all the persecution, and that's only going to be for a limited time. So what's the application then for us today? I want to highlight just two areas, and both are closely related. The first is in regard to the separation of God's people from the outer court, from those who don't make up the people of God. In other words, those in the world. When the New Testament uses the word world in this way, it's used in a negative way and speaks of the systems, the values, the ways of life which are woven into human society, that which is contrary to and in active opposition to God, his word and his kingdom. And that's not surprising, is it? The scriptures maintain that this is the case throughout, that the world is opposed to the kingdom of God. For example, Psalm 2 says they rage against the Lord and his kingdom. And that has implications for all that we, the people of God, seek to do in ministry today. At a spiritual level, we war against the principalities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6. It says to me that we will struggle to live the Christian life. We fight against unseen powers as we seek to live for Jesus and walk in obedience to him. There will be a constant battle against sin and temptation. The pull of the sinful world with all its enticements is attractive most times and will it will take all our spiritual resources and resolve to not give in to it. I'm sure you will realize that and you would know that from experience. Sin is attractive. The world and what it has to offer by the way of, by the way of things that are anti-gospel and anti-God are all too attractive. It appeals to our sinful appetite, to our eyes and our sinful desires. Listen to the Apostle John. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's the struggle in the Christian life. But there's something else that this highlights to me. And, that, and that's the fact that as we seek to spread the gospel, as we seek to do evangelism, this has implications for it as well. You see, my friends, don't expect that a non-Christian friends will respond eagerly to the gospel. Remember that there is a battle going on as Satan seeks to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. People are hostile to the gospel in our day and time. To use the words of our text, those on the outer court trample on the holy city. It's becoming increasingly difficult to speak openly of Christ or to put a Christian view out, out there without facing some sort of hostility or cynical response from our non-Christian friends, from the media and so on. And yet this shouldn't surprise us, should it? 
we will be reminded of it again in the next chapter as we see the dragon seeking to destroy the church through violent aggression and deception. So expect it and don't let it get you down or lessen your resolve to live for Christ and continue to speak of Christ and share him with others. And I say that because God has his chosen people who are out there yet and who have not yet heard the gospel whom he needs to bring into the kingdom. And the means the Lord uses, of course, to speak the gospel to others is you and I. And when we do, scripture makes that wonderful statement about those who share Jesus and his gospel with others. It says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The Lord sees you as beautiful. So keep in mind that the world is opposed to the things of Jesus and we can face hostility. But don't let that put you off your resolve to live for him and to share him with others. And then not only is the church despised and opposed by the world, but the text also highlights the fact that there is a clear separation between those in the sanctuary and those on the outer court. And the Lord himself makes that distinction in specifying that only the worshippers in the temple or the inner sanctuary be measured and not those in the outer court. So there is a clear separation, isn't there, between the saints of God and those who oppose them. And that has implications for us as well. It tells me that God has set us apart for himself and that we are to be distinct from those who oppose, who oppose the gospel, those of the unbelieving world. Christians are addressed as saints in the New Testament, a word that means holy or set apart. That's our status, if you like. And God has set us apart for himself. It relates both to our standing before God and our conduct in the light of it. We are to be distinct in the way we live and conduct ourselves in the community. The believer marches to a different drumbeat. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, if you belong to the world, the world will love you as its own. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So what does it mean to not belong to the world or the age in which we live? Now, obviously it doesn't mean that we have to have some sort of monastic existence, if I can put it that way, whereby we cut ourselves off from everything and become a recluse and not associate with any unbelievers or pull back from the world into a subculture where life seems safer perhaps or purer. That isn't what it means to not belong to the world. Neither does it mean that life is divided between the spiritual and the material. That the material is worldly and the spiritual more value than the material and of eternal significance. That's not the case. You know how some Christians believe that, you know, reading your Bible, prayer and evangelism is spiritual. But things like working in an office or doing some plumbing work or enjoying some classical music or the football and everything else, that's material. And so that being the case, why read fiction when you could be reading your Bible? Have you heard that line of thinking? Listen to one writer and I quote, Reading scripture is important, 
But when the carpenter sets aside the Bible to build a wall, that too is done for God's glory. That's spiritual. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. Francis Schaeffer says this, and I quote, For the Christian, all of life is not only spiritual, it is equally spiritual. So come back to the implications of this separation. It is a call to live obedient lives for Jesus. That's what it means, being separated. In the midst of the pressure to conform to the world and to take the world's sinful ways and standards and priorities, as a Christian, you and I are called to live a life that pleases God among our non-Christian friends and relatives. And that's no easy task. The world is constantly in our face and the pressure to conform is huge. We are constantly bombarded by the TV programs we watch and the stuff that goes into our minds is a constant source of danger. I say that because the mind can be damaged spiritually and morally by what we feed it with. All sin enters at the level of the mind and that's where the battle for holiness must be fought. And so conforming to the world then becomes somewhat easy, doesn't it? Because your mind has either taken on its standards or it's conditioned by it. There is no doubt that what we see and hear has a profound effect on how we behave. As a man or woman thinks, so he or she is, says the scriptures. So the question is, are you sure you don't have a foot in both camps? One in the Christian life and the other planted firmly in the world. Do you stand out as someone whom God has set apart from the world by the way you live as a Christian? Stand out in a positive way, mind you, by being known because, you are, because of your Christ-like personality, your kindness, for example, your love for people, the way you talk and relate to people and so on. Do people know you as someone whom they feel they like or whom they can relate to and talk freely to without fear of a judgmental or legalistic attitude or a sense of superiority? All these things have a bearing on being separate from the world as a Christian. I say that because it's not unusual to hear of people who call themselves Christian and they really carry a bad witness for Christ out there in the marketplace. Friends, we are to be in the world as salt and light and bear a good name for Jesus, in spite of the fact that the world will seek to trample underfoot the gospel and the things of Christ. And so we endeavor to live for Jesus in the marketplace, the university, in the schools, wherever God has placed you. Anything other than a good witness will bear a bad name for the Lord Jesus and the gospel. Pretty simple, straightforward stuff, really, when you think about it. Just live for Christ. Apply biblical principles to your life, to the way you talk, the way you converse with people. And so I finish by asking a couple of questions which we do well to think about and respond to in the light of the word this morning. And the first is this. As those whom God has set apart, we've seen that from our text, 
The question is, am I growing in biblical discernment in a world that is increasingly anti-biblical and to which it's so easy as a Christian to be accommodating, accepting of it, where you blend in, even at times unaware that you're doing so. Blend in with their beliefs and values constantly changing in our society. We need to develop a biblical mindset that is God-honoring and that will please him in our response to what we face in living our lives today. Are you willing to take a stand on what the Bible says and apply biblical principles to the situations you are faced with? Let me give you a quick example. It's acceptable practice now for a couple to live together before they are married. How would you respond to a Christian friend who wants you to help her move into a unit with her boyfriend or fiancé before they tie the knot? What would you say? Would you say something? Speak up and let your belief and biblical values be heard because she's your friend and she's a Christian? Or would you say nothing? Or would you reason that they are soon to be married and so, so what? Can't be all that sinful if they're going to be married in a couple of weeks or three weeks time or whenever. You see, values, beliefs and standards in society are constantly changing and I'm not telling anything new. And that's something we have to live with. But it doesn't mean that we change biblical beliefs and principles which we hold to in order to accommodate a changing world. Yes, we do need to constantly rethink our approach to how we reach people without Christ, but not at the expense of biblical truth and standards. All too often, we don't want to be considered as the wowser, do we? So it's easy to keep quiet and show acceptance of stuff that we would never approve for ourselves as God's people. And so we blend into life and culture rather than seek to apply the truth of our Christian worldview. And that is a constant battle. So I would close by saying, decide today that you're going to be someone who will not be influenced by the secular culture we live in. And that is so prevalent in our day and time. We are those who are constantly fighting against stuff that's going on in our society that's anti-biblical and anti-God and anti-gospel. So be someone who's willing to make a stand for biblical values and principles. Malcolm mentioned Moira Deeming in his prayer. And there's salt and light in Parliament. Someone who's willing to stand up for the gospel. Don't blend into the crowd and go along with stuff that your conscience wouldn't let you do. And the final question flows from the first one. And that is it, and, and it is this. Am I saturating my mind and conscience in God's word so I can discern what pleases God and what doesn't? That seems somewhat obvious, doesn't it? How else could we be those who know what we believe unless we know God's word? 
We need to be those who are not only familiar with God's word, but those who are steeped into it, steeped in it. It's the scriptures which will keep us on the cutting edge when it comes to resisting the pull of the world and being able to discern what's pleasing to God and what isn't. And it will also train you in righteousness. Because you see, if you are taking to heart what you read and study in the Bible, surely that must safeguard you. The Spirit of God will work on your conscience through the scriptures and it will bring a conviction of sin to keep you from the compromise, from compromising with sin and the world. And it will not only help us with our walk with Christ, but it will also help us in our relationships with unbelievers as we seek to thoughtfully bring before them our Christian worldview whenever we have the opportunity to do so. So there we have it. Let me say that for you to become the temple and have God dwell in you, as the text points out, you need to know Jesus in your life. In fact, that's the only way you will find all your sins forgiven and have a meaningful and purposeful life and in the end find eternal life. And if you haven't found that life, God stands ready to give it to you as a gift by his grace. But you need to come to him, seek it, and he will respond by seeking to grant you that life. And you will then be moved to being his own man or woman in whom he can come and live within by his spirit. How will you respond? Would you keep ignoring it at your own peril or would you accept him and find forgiveness and meaning and purpose in life and in the end know heaven itself? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that you have uh, placed your hand upon us, that you've brought us to yourself through the gospel and through what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We rejoice in him this day and we pray that he might be our all in all, that as we seek to live each day with the pressures and the stresses that we face in life, we thank you for your word, the Bible, we thank you for your spirit who empowers us and we pray that you'd grant us ongoing desire to be salt and light in our community. So Lord God that we might indeed be those who are willing to speak about the Lord Jesus when the opportunity comes up and that through it that we might honour him and bring glory to him. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. In being the temple of God, God has given us his spirit to indwell us.